The story of life usually begins at birth, but here we are going to start at the end. Well, actually, after the end. What do we mean? We want to start by looking at historical figures' legacies. How does society remember a person? And how does that memory shape our understanding of the past, and perhaps, more importantly, the present? I'm Justina. And I'm Jamie. And this is The Stories We Tell, a podcast that analyzes historical figures and how the stories we have told about them shape the larger histories about the creation of nations, the identity of their citizens, and so much more. Ultimately, history is a collection of interpretations made by historians. Here, we will look at how those interpretations created memory, one legacy at a time. Hi, and welcome to the stories we tell. I know we already gave you a miniature intro with what our purposes and intentions for this podcast are going to be, but now we're going to tell you just a little bit about ourselves. So I'm Justina. And I'm Jamie. And we are both historians who met in grad school. Correct. And we are missing seeing each other regularly and talking about history together. And so we thought we would make a podcast and force ourselves to do it. Keep the conversation going. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Exactly. Anything you want to add? No, I don't think so. I think that pretty much covers it. I think so, too. We're excited to talk about an assortment Mm -hmm. of interesting historical figures. Sure. And uh, we're going to start with Pocahontas today. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. Okay. Yes, it's my, it's my turn today. And we're going to be talking about Matoica, also known as Pocahontas, also known in some circles as Rebecca, right? Mm-hmm. So um, Matoica was one of dozens of children born to Wuhansanaka, who is often called Powhatan, the paramount chief of a political alliance of Algonquin Indians in Tidewater, Virginia. So Algonquin speaking Indians in Tidewater, Virginia. Um, In the mid to late 1500s, Powhatan inherited control over the core six tribes of Sanaka Moko. Um, I do apologize to everyone. I'm going to stumble over these a little bit, I think. Um, the Powhatans, the Yotanans, the Mataponis, the Pamunkeys, the Aerotex, and the Appomattox. Um, so oftentimes, those six groups are often just referred to as Powhatan, just like Wahansanaka is also referred to lots of times as Powhatan. I assume that's because the English had a really hard time saying all of those names and they felt it much easier to just say Powhatan. Um, Anyway, (laughs) we'll probably call them all Powhatan as well because uh, then I don't have to speak so slowly. Um, and worry about mispronouncing things because certainly don't want to be disrespectful. Um, Over the next few decades, Powhatan expanded the political alliance by a combination of diplomacy and force. So by 1607, 
roughly 28 to 32 lesser chiefdoms paid tribute to Powhatan. So you have these six core tribes, right? And then through kind of going around and trying to use diplomacy to make different sorts of political alliances and also utilizing warfare, he had brought again 28 to 32 into more of like a tributary status um where you know they paid tribute to him so um matoica's mother's name and tribal origin were never recorded in her infancy matoica or pocahontas was given the secret personal name matoica the one that i've been using okay. So Mattaponi, which is one of those six core groups, right? Um, Mattaponi oral tradition, however, holds that Pocahontas was the name of Matoica's mother and that the young girl took that name um, after her mother's death as a sign that Powhatan had given her that name after her mother's death as a sign of affection for both the child and the deceased mother. Okay. Given the matrilineal traditions of the Powhatan, it's likely that um, Pocahontas's maternal kin cared for the child after her mother's death. So rather than um, kind of being cared for and loved on by her father or her father's people, um, it would have been her mother's people that were had the responsibility to look after her and raise her. Later in her childhood, um, Pocahontas likely joined Powhatan's large, busy household where everyone worked, including Powhatan himself. I place emphasis on that because, you know, when the English arrived, there are so many misconceptions um about kind of native political power and what political leaders were supposed to do and act like and things like that so in addition to their daily jobs members of the household labored to produce grand feasts on important occasions um pocahontas probably participated in what was traditionally women's work and that included farming collecting wild foods and firewood making utensils and cooking and cleaning. So because of the kind of gender division of labor, um, she probably had little contact with her father or other males during the day. In the evenings, she probably had stiff competition for her father's attention. Still by 1607, the story goes, she was his favorite child. Um, can, can you tell, how do we know this? <laughs> what sources are telling us this? Because you said as the story goes. Mattaponi oral tradition states that she was his favorite. <laughs> okay, great. <laughs> but some historians are dubious of this claim, citing the lack of documentary evidence to prove that point. Okay, okay. Because it was something that the English talked about a lot. You know, right. but I think that kind of gets into the stories we tell about okay. why it was so important to portray Matoica or Pocahontas as Powhatan's favorite child. Same reason why it was really important to talk about her as a princess and all of these things. Yes, yes. Um, so Pocahontas's first opportunity to see an Englishman came late in December of 1607. So this is about eight months after the founding of Jamestown. When John Smith was brought to Powhatan's capital. 
So Smith had initially been a captive, but after being vetted by the high priests, he arrived as an honored guest. The general history of Virginia, New England, and the Summer Isles, which came out in 1624 in that book, Smith famously wrote that he was threatened with death only to be rescued by Pocahontas, a story mm -hmm. that subsequently became legend. However, and a Disney movie. Yeah, that too. <laughs> However, in a more reliable account, a letter written a few months after his visit, Smith said only that he was um, given a feast and then interviewed by Powhatan. Okay. And how old is she when she's first having these encounters? Because if I remember correctly, she's quite young. Yeah, she's she's pretty young. I think she was 11. I think I remember Maybe 11, that. like 10 or okay. 11 or something. Yeah. So, which, and I will say, I know you have never seen the Disney movie, but as a child of the 90s, so much of my generation's knowledge of Pocahontas comes from the Disney film Pocahontas. And I think, I mean, the the film portrays her much older during this time period. And so I think that that came to a shock for me, or it was shocking to me to find out just how young she was. Um, yes, because she was, that was in, not the story I knew. In actuality, she was a prepubescent girl at the time yes. that all this was yes. happening. Um, so the version in of events in the letter um, makes sense. Given how eager um, Indian leadership was to find out why the English had come and stayed in Virginia, the interview took place inside Powhatan's house, a space large enough to accommodate only a few dozen people at most. And in fact, Pocahontas probably was not even there because as we just indicated, she was very young perhaps 10 or 11. So she would have been needed to help with food preparation and washing up, not kind of performing some sort of special diplomatic function. Um, it is likely that at this meeting, Powhatan worked to place Jamestown in his political orbit. So kind of similarly to those other tributary groups that we talked about at the very beginning. So a trade relationship was worked out, um, but it's important to keep in mind that um, there were a lot of kind of ceremony, ceremonial and um, ritual aspects to native diplomacy. It's not, it wasn't so much of a, you know, coming to some sort of agreement and then just shaking on it. There were a lot of kind of rituals that were undergone in order to make the person that the, the diplomatic relationship was being made with to kind of transform that person from an outsider to somebody connected or an, an insider with the community. So sometimes like later documentary evidence reveals that um, kind of fictive adoptions and things like that would take place in order to um, add kind of another to really kind of solemnize a, a kind of political and economic relationship. Um, and so in this way, if we if we kind of think in those terms, then 
it is possible that there were like we think about Smith's later account about, you know, having his brain stashed in and almost stashed in and things like that. Um, and like how everybody was dressed that was there um, and some of the other elements, it could be possible that some sort of ritual was performed in order to kind of make him fictive kin. And then that meant that the Powhatan people had a person in Jamestown, if that, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. So absolutely. Um, it kind of unothered John Smith in a way. Mm -hmm. And so that, that came with a lot of expectations for Smith, because while, you know, he kind of thought of Powhatan as being representative of these people, um, of these native people and their side of the trade relationship, John Smith was representative of the trade relationship on the other side. So yes. it's incorrect. I mean, like we kind of want to make fun of him now because clearly he was such a shameless self promoter and he was the worst enjoyed, <laughs> you know, telling grand stories about himself in which he was rescued by beautiful women in various different places across the world. But um, I do think that it's accurate to say that he was a very important figure in the economic and kind of trading um, relationship that was established between the Powhatan people um, and Jamestown. So, okay. In the spring of 1608, Pocahontas traveled to Jamestown as part of a delegation charged with negotiating the release of several Indian captives. She was possibly sent as a reminder of um, to Smith uh, as his of his status as fictive kin and the responsibilities that he had to Powhatan in such a position. Um, women, <clears throat> particularly in the Native South, where most societies were matrilineal women frequently attended diplomatic envoys like this um, because women were symbolic of the intimate kinship ties that ritualized these alliances um with his later accounts suggesting that pocahontas saved him personally um as well as in some accounts like the entire colony of Jamestown, Smith had a tendency to attribute to Powhatan's daughter power she unlikely, she probably didn't possess, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and then that tradition continues, as I will talk more about in the conclusion, right? About modern day references to her as a princess. Um, yes. Instead, right, this is the society in which the paramount chief's position was matrilineal. So what that means then is that Powhatan's brothers, sisters, and his sister's children, okay, so his brothers, his sisters, and his sister's children um, were his heirs, not his own children. Oh, Okay. Because it's matrilineal, right? Right. You know, it's interesting you say that because a part of me was thinking if this, this community is matrilineal, why is there not a female leader? Why is Powhatan the leader? There will be a female leader later. Okay. okay. And there are okay. female leaders in other places. Okay. Okay. 
Um, that is interesting. So it's not his heir. His heirs are not his children. It's his siblings' children. Yeah, or like his brother becomes leader after he dies, for example. Okay. Okay. All right. So I say all of that to remind everyone that Pocahontas was not a princess in the European sense. And next to her favored half brothers, she was probably, you know, powerless, basically. Yeah. Um, on most occasions when she visited Jamestown, she probably tagged along with adults, as did other young people eager to gawk at foreigners. Like the same way little kids are interested in things that are different now. I think, I mean, and I think that's why, you know, one of the things that you placed emphasis on a few moments ago is really important to remember in this case. She's very young. And She's so young. we need to kind of think about the fact that she would be i mean she's a child so she's participating in these sorts of things the way that you would expect a child to participate in them you know right. her interactions and observations with people in jamestown are those of a child right the accounts detail the fact that she is frequently there but she's you know like doing cartwheels with the other kids and stuff like that. You know, I mean, she's not being carried around on a litter, um, you know, <laughs> going to she's important, not attending meetings yeah, and acting like a diplomat. Yes, according, <laughs> yes, attending important diplomatic meetings, right? These are all things um, uh, to, keep in, to keep in mind. Um, all right. So beginning in the fall of 1608, relations between the Jamestown colony and Powhatan became more strained. And this these tensions all culminate in the first Anglo-Powhatan War. Skirmishes in this conflict began about the same time that John Smith departed Virginia in 1609. Smith's departure perhaps made things worse. Again, thinking about Smith's perhaps his if we believe that that is kind of what the situation was, those kinship connections that he had and how, you know, he really is kind of put in a position to mediate between these two groups and the fact that he's gone. The person that the Powhatan people kind of trusted, the person that they had made familiar and kind of a um well, they've made him fictive kin, perhaps. Um, if all of that's true, then that would be, you know, extremely unsettling in terms of the kind of diplomatic relationship. Um, also, the English were just behaving terribly. So that obviously puts tensions on things. Um, so Powhatan's warriors besieged Jamestown in the winter of 1609-1610. And this, the result of that was the famous starving time, mm -hmm. right? Uh, when did that study it documentary was, come out? It's pretty recent, right? It was really, I think it was like five years ago or something yeah. um, where they found the remains that had clearly been butchered, butchered by someone who knew what they were doing as a butcher. Mm -hmm. So fascinating. Mm -hmm. So fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So cannibalism absolutely happened. Um, and one of the results of that or one of the reasons for that is because the town was besieged by and starving. 
Right. Yes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Little is known about Pocahontas's life during this time. What we do know comes from the recordings of an Englishman who's getting his information from one of Powhatan's brothers-in-law. And according to this, it appears that Pocahontas was married in sometime in 1610. Okay. Um, I don't know, married, you know, like has a lot of Christian connotations. And obviously right. that's not the sort of thing that was happening in this case. But um, she was, I guess, if we can join together with um, an Indian named uh, Kakoam, who was described as in this kind of recording, again, by an Englishman as the, quote, private captain or warrior who was a commoner. So again, like really important about making these, you know, kind of elevating Pocahontas's status, you know, princess, royalty, all of that. And then she marries a mere commoner. <laughs> um, there was no record of any children or of where the couple lived after the wedding according to this one record okay 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 but however according to mataponi oral tradition kakoam was the younger brother of potawomac chief japazaw tradition also states that during this marriage ceremony matoaka adopt formally adopts this name pocahontas and is okay. no longer referred to as matoaka anymore which I don't know, seems to counter some of the, the ideas that it was a secret name. I'm not, I don't know. I don't have an explanation just yet. During this time, the English began to expand their settlements beyond the Jamestown Fort. By 1613, the English were sending ships to trade with the Potomac River tribes who were beginning to act beyond the control of Powhatan. So we can think about those people as being those groups of 28 to 32 kind of tributary tribes because there are now kind of other opportunities for alliances. These people see an opportunity to get away or remove themselves from Powhatan's orbit by establishing relationships with the English. And the English see an opportunity to create trade relationships with other people, which will lead them to be less dependent on Powhatan. So in both cases, it it undercuts Powhatan authority. Okay. Um, in April 1613, Captain Samuel Argyll heard that Pocahontas was visiting a satellite town. Um, one of his trading partners, this captain's trading partners. Oral tradition states that she lived there with Kakoam. So according to the English, she was visiting. According to Mataponi oral tradition, that's where she and Kakoam actually lived. Okay. Argyll, again, according to the oral tradition, Argyll pressured Japazaw to assist him in taking her prisoner, promising an alliance against Powhatan. Japazaw agreed and with his wife's help, Lord Pocahontas aboard Argyll's ship. Argyll prop promptly transported her to Jamestown and sent a ransom demand to her father. Okay. So, again, uh, a decision being made 
purely for political reasons. Could this be why some people said she was her father's favorite? I mean, maybe. Um, okay. I think. I think I'm going to say a little bit about that in just a second. I think, though, what I'd like to say at this moment is that this sort of incident reminds us about how to understand historic native worldviews and perspectives. I think at least like for my students, a lot of times they get frustrated because they hear stories like this and they think, why, you know, why did the, all of these people were Indians? Why were some of them willing to help the English? You know, why didn't they realize that that wasn't the thing that they needed to do? And so a couple of things. First thing is that at this time, there was no unified sense of an Indian identity. Right. Of course. There was, yeah. There wasn't like they didn't look at each other and go, oh, we're all native and these people are different from us. They're Europeans. That's not that's not how it worked. That's how they that's not how they saw things. Instead, you know, you were either a member of the community or you were another. And that's one of the reasons why there was so much ceremony and ritual with the diplomatic relationships, because you had to unother people. Um, and so either you were a member of the community or you were an outsider. And so it's not we tend to, I think, use our current the way that we see the world and kind of cast that back and expect that all the historic native people would have looked around and looked at each other and went, we're darker, they're white people, clearly like we're all together and we should be in opposition to them. And that's just, that's really not the case. Instead, the English were just another group of others. Okay. And yes, Powhatan was concerned about why they were there, what their intentions were. But for the native people in this area, the English were a group that could, you know, help solidify people's power, right? Through alliances, through access to trade goods, things like that. So um, I think it's just a really good reminder for us to take a step back and go, oh, right. Everybody, you know, these cultural distinctions are very important. Um, and it's not just a matter of, of race. And there was no, you know, universal monolithic. And I mean, Honestly, there's not today either, right? Indian, right, of course, identity. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing goes right along with this. Um, I warn my students a lot about teleological thinking, right? We know how the story goes, and it's tempting sometimes to read that knowledge back into the past and kind of start to see things as inevitable and we shouldn't do that. History's full of contingencies. And at any moment, things could have gone a little bit different and we'd have a very different story. So I think as a reminder here, people like Japazal and others, they don't know 
the end of the story, right? In terms of where they're sitting in that particular moment in the 17th century, the English are just another group of people. And maybe by allying with them, they can remove, well, they can remove Powhatan's influence. They don't want Powhatan's influence, right? It's becoming a nuisance to them, oppressive. And so they see an opportunity with the English. You know, there is no thought of like, oh, well, if we do this, then, you know, in a few in a few hundred years, you know, colonialism will have run its course. And you know what I mean? Yes, of course. And I think you made mention of kind of race and people were not thinking about race in the way that we understand race, right? Race, the way we understand race is a modern construction. And so I think that's also important. And it's hard for us to it's it's hard to wrap our head around the idea that race didn't exist because race is so much a part of the world and the way the world works unfortunately right because it's just a construction but i think it's hard for us to kind of remove that understanding or that framework from our understanding when looking at these sorts of histories i think yeah i mean people certainly discriminated Right. Right. There were definitely ideas of superiority and inferiority and things like that, but um, not along the same sorts of lines that we tend to think about them in the 21st century. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, And in the same way that they wouldn't have. I mean, I think a lot of the times when we talk about Native American peoples, that is categorized as a particular race right in the same way that, but they weren't obviously they were not a monolithic people they are not a monolithic people um so they would never think of themselves as you know a race that you you check off on a census box yeah i know and i think that's like all of this is the result of the colonial project right and i think that yes. it's annoying about how these boxes and these racial categories really were annoying doesn't really capture it. It's tragic. The way that these categories work to, well, they just, they deny native sovereignty because if you can, if you can change these distinctions become and differences become about race then you're not taking into consideration the political identity, which is so important when you're talking about native communities, past and present. Absolutely. You have to be, you have, a community has to say, yes, you are a member of our community. Right. Anyway, that's probably a different discussion for a different day. But we got to this place where there's these boxes and we see these things and we have these misconceptions about monolithic identities. It it stems from this colonial process that we're talking about today. Agreed completely. Well said. Okay, so Pocahontas, as a reminder, has been kidnapped. Yes, that's where we left off. Yes. Yes. All right. And um, our goal is attempting to ransom her. Okay. Yes. So Powhatan made an initial payment and then dithered for several months. This dithering 
is a point that has been used by historians to question claims that she was his favorite. Ah, she was his favorite favorite, then he wouldn't have dithered. Fair. Yeah. So they claim. I'm not saying that's my opinion. I'm saying some have claimed using this as their evidence to support that claim. All right. So during this time, Pocahontas remained at the English fort. According to English accounts, she was treated well, although uh, Mattapony oral traditions offer a very different story. So I want to throw out a, a warning here. Um, according to Mattapony oral tradition, Pocahontas was raped while in colonist custody. Mm-hmm. Um, so, all right. What have scholars said? Okay, let me be clear. This is not what I'm saying. I'm summarizing what scholars have said. Some historians have disputed that such an oral tradition survived, like that it was taken, you know, became part of knowledge at that time and continued today, and instead argue that any mistreatment of Pocahontas would have gone against the interests of the English in their negotiations with Powhatan. Like if the point was to get something from Powhatan, according to their logic, the sexual assault of his daughter wouldn't have helped their case. Mm-hmm. Um A truce had been called. The Indians still far outnumbered the English and colonists feared retaliation. So, um, again, kind of along utilizing this logic, you know, why would you unnecessarily antagonize? So there are there are different and different interpretations. Some scholars have said that. And I'm not talking about like specifically with the oral tradition here, but some scholars have said that Pocahontas would have had a cultural framework through which to understand her captivity. And that cultural framework was the fact that it was common practice in Native communities in the South at this time to raid places and take women, well, to take captives. And depending on if you were man, woman, or child, often depended on your fate. That's an overgeneralization, but typically different decisions were made based on whether or not you were a man, woman, or child. And in many cases, a woman who had been taken captive would be adopted into the new community. She would become a member of that household. She would, you know, learn the new language, learn the new traditions, often marry a person from from that community. Once a person was adopted, their previous identity wasn't discussed, thought about, or anything. Scholars that have made this argument that she had a cultural framework to understand what happened to her say that, okay, so she's being held captive in an English fort. She's getting taught a new language. She's being encouraged to convert to Christianity. And, you know, there is kind of 
some romance, if we can call it that, happening. I'll talk about that in a little bit more in just a second. So all of that is in keeping with the same sort of expectations she would have met had she been taken captive by another native group, sent, taken back to their town and adopted. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I, I know a little bit about this because there were cases in which female colonists had been right kidnapped and then brought into a native community in a similar fashion correct yeah those the records the records that we have for that are later and the captivity narratives become like a whole their whole genre right literary genre um but the point is is that it was very much in keeping with uh 17th century native warfare practices in the south to take captives and frequently to adopt women and then those women just become a member of the community and i whenever i talk about this in class i always have students ask me because they're just so baffled by you know the fact that people didn't fight back and Mm -hmm. and i think the, the thing that i always say to them is kind of like this is the the very base kind of structure as we understand it, things would have varied widely depending on the individual and the individual circumstances. And so, you know, age, personality, um, you know, temperament, all of these things would have factored into how a person processed these things. But I guess the point here is, is that, Pocahontas most definitely would have seen people coming in and going through this adoption process as captives or being, you know, ritually tortured and killed as captives or just, you know, being continued, continued to be held in a state of unfreedom as captives. Right. These are things that she would have seen and that she would have been familiar with. So scholars have some scholars have said that this understanding existed for her and so she had a way to kind of think about what her captivity experience was like makes perfect sense it's a part of her cultural understanding which is very foreign to us right um others though um and i think this is a more uh this is a more contemporary kind of uh interpretation of things Others, other scholars argue that Pocahontas is the kind of first example of MMIW that we have. Oh, that's really interesting. Please tell me more about that. So for those that don't know, MMIW stands for Missing Murdered Indigenous Women. It's a it's the most disgusting disgusting legacy of colonialism that continues today. Native women are exponentially more likely to be the victims of sexual violence than any other female demographic in this country. And it's it's an episode in and of itself, so I don't have a lot of time to go into it. But, you know, I encourage people that aren't familiar with it to, you know, do some do some looking around because um, the the statistics are horrifying, quite honestly. 
And so some are say that Pocahontas represents kind of the first victim in this because she was kidnapped, um, taken against her will. And while, you know, maybe that's not missing, she was still taken away from her family, from a community. And um, of course, those people too are also relying on the the oral tradition. Can I ask a question? And the abuse about- that she suffered according to that tradition. Yeah. So you said at one point earlier that the oral tradition states that she had been sexually assaulted during this time period. Yes. Would that also go along with a lot of other narratives we have about Native women being the victims of sexual assault um, at the hands of colonialism or or people traveling from Europe during this time period or a little bit later? Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, you have like some European, um, like the conquistadors in particular and other European explorers, if we can call them that, write about it. I mean, rather unashamedly about the sexual assaults that they commit on Native women or that they witness others committing on Native women. And I think, you know, there have been these um, comparisons or arguments made that, you know, the, the bodies of Native women are symbolic of the land. And like conquering, conquering the land. And I... I talk and conquest. Yeah. Yeah. And I talk about this uh, in my conclusion and how kind of Pocahontas. Yeah. So I won't make everybody hear my thoughts on that twice. But um, yeah. So for people that argue that she's kind of the first example of MMIW, they are relying on the, the Mattaponi oral tradition and the sexual assault that's included in that. All right. So some things that we know definitely did happen when she was in custody. Pocahontas was baptized and given the Christian name Rebecca. Um, is also at this time, which she supposedly revealed her secret name, which was Matoica. So I'm not sure exactly how that works. I think that there are a lot of questions about her name and there may could even be, you know, a whole, I don't know, a whole sort of side analysis on her, her various different identities and how they're represented in these, in these names. Um, So by the time the English forced the issue of ransom payment in March, 1614, Pocahontas and John Rolfe, or Rebecca, as she was being called at this time, apparently had fallen in love. Mm. A 28-year-old widower from a family in the English gentry, Rolfe had come to Virginia in 1610 and over a dozen years made his his fortune. Um, His wife died in Bermuda when he was, uh, his first wife, sorry, died in Bermuda when he was coming over um, or coming to Virginia. I think there's a question. Um, We don't know really how Rebecca felt. We don't 
or Pocahontas. We don't know how she felt. We do know a lot about what Rolf felt because he wrote about it. Yeah, and, and I know I know a little bit about this, and it is fascinating, right? He's very religious, and his religion is coming into play. Is that correct? Yeah, I think he um, he's he's very conflicted about the feelings that he has for her um he is writing a lot of people to kind of essentially ask them to say like no it's okay really it's okay um and i i don't know i mean in terms of his letters yeah love or lust yeah I he was calling it love he was saying love he was using the word love but it doesn't, it reads a different sort of way. Yeah. And that, I don't know. And and maybe I'm not reading it with a 17th century eye. I don't know. Sure. Is he also significant to the production of tobacco in Virginia? Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm so glad my early American history knowledge has, you know, lays deep in my brain somewhat. <laughs> way to go. As a 20th centuryist. Um, and and there are some questions as to, you know, like how much Pocahontas was involved in some okay. of that and the knowledge um, around that. There's no record of where Pocahontas and Rolf were married or where they lived after the wedding, although Rolf owned land across the river from Jamestown. A son, Thomas, was born sometime later. Because the first recorded mention of him is on the occasion of his mother's death, the date and place of his birth are unknown. Now, okay. Mattapone tradition holds that he was born before the marriage and was not Rolf's child at all and was instead the result of Pocahontas' assaults, rape or rapes. Whoa. Okay. Wow. Um, Powhatan called a halt to his ongoing war with the English. Um, it is unlikely that Pocahontas negotiated the peace, as some writers have claimed, nor would she have been needed as an interpreter by then. Okay. Instead, she served as figurehead. And again, thinking about the important role that women played in establishing alliances, right? So in an effort to raise funds on behalf of the Virginia company, Pocahontas um, sailed to Virginia in the spring of 1616 with her husband, the deputy governor of Virginia, a number of young Indian women, and a brother-in-law of Powhatan sent by the Paramount chief as an observer, or really an intelligence agent is how he was thought of. Um, in particular, he was tasked with finding John Smith, meeting the English king, viewing the English god, and counting the number of Englishmen and the number of trees. Oh, that's right. I forgot that detail. I forgot that detail. It's mm-hmm. so interesting. So Powhatan realizes now that the English aren't going to go anywhere. And so he's trying to get a sense of how many more of them there are. Oh, my and God. Kind of what their resources are. It's so fascinating. I mean, thinking about this journey for both, like this travel to England and how. Well, I think. I'm not articulating myself well at all. Well, I think the 
the thing that that really struck them, the Native people that were part of this group, were the number of people. Yeah. And I think that knowledge, I mean, I don't know how it made them feel, but it, it was very sobering. I mean, in terms of like how many more might come, you know? Right, right. Um, some scholars have also suggested that Pocahontas was also tasked with representing her father and gathering intelligence for him. Um, this group landed in Plymouth in September 1616 and traveled overland to London. Once in London, she was lodged and clothed at the Virginia Company's expense. And that famous engraving of her was made. Right. That one that right. everybody knows of her in that hat. Yes, it is a very particular hat. It is. Essentially, the company hoped to use this image as marketing in their efforts to raise funds. Fascinating. Yeah. Uh, Pocahontas, along with Powhatan's brother-in-law, met King James I or King James VI, depending on where you were, at Whitehall Palace. The king was impressed with the pair and invited them to a formal Christmas costume ball. Wow. Fun times ahead. John Smith also met with Pocahontas, but after she left London um, and was staying in a small village outside the city, she was angry. Yes, this is one of my favorite parts of the story. Which clearly, right, evidence of their love affair. (laughs) The sarcasm. You have to remember, this is a podcast. They can't see your face. No, she was mad, though. I, so that part of the story was really uh, gratifying to read about. Well, okay. because John Smith, and I'm going to use a word that you really like, is such a cad. <laughs> yeah, classic, classic cad. <laughs> the mold of all future cads. Um, anyway, so her words, uh, okay, I, to clarify, I was kidding about the the love affair. Although... You know, at the time, like Smith tried to spin it as like, see, she still likes me all, you know. Anyway, cat. Right. So, her words were, though, and I quote, you did promise Powhatan what was yours would be his and he the like you. She then called him father. Smith, she called Smith father, explaining that Smith had called Powhatan father when he was a stranger in Virginia, quote, and by the same reason, so must I do you because now is everybody with me? All right. So you're here. She called Smith father, explaining that Smith had called Powhatan father. When he was a stranger in Virginia and then, quote, by the same reason, so must I do you because now she's a stranger in England. And so what what is all of that? Children's the language of kinship. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. I mean, I think more so this is really shows that they did perform, you know, some sort of traditional ceremony that brought him in as a community member. And hence her anger is a obviously represents why she would be upset. The betrayal. She's angry with Smith because he had broken those bonds. Right. Right. 
Um, if Smith was an accurate reporter, um, he did write about this conversation seven years after it happened. But we do have corroborating evidence because some people witnessed the fact that she was pissed. A week before the Rolfs sailed for Virginia, they were awarded a large grant by the Virginia company to start a mission, fun times ahead, in which Pocahontas would have been expected to serve the dual roles of interpreter and house mother. Okay. This indicates that at least when they were planning to set sail, Pocahontas was still well. Right. Because there's some questions about, you know, did they... Oh, that's interesting. Did they kill her? When did she get sick? What happened? All of that. Um, the group waited two months before better weather um, and sailed for Virginia in March 1617. Before the journey could really begin, though, Pocahontas got sick. So she was well when they were making these plans to form a mission. But okay. sometime in March 1617, she gets sick. She's only 21. <gasps> Oh my God. She's only 21 years old. Uh huh. Oh my goodness. But she wow. was, she was taken ashore and unfortunately she died. Her son Thomas was too sick to travel. So he stayed in England. Right. Okay. I did remember this. Yes. He finally sailed for Virginia in 1635, but it was 13 years after his father's death. So Ooh. Rolf went ahead and, you know, eventually went on. Pocahontas, you know, deceased. And so Thomas is, you know, being raised and educated in England. Wow. The ships that did return to Virginia carried to the colony an epidemic of dysentery, which colonists referred to as bloody flux, and which Argyll referred to as, quote, a great mortality. Oh, wow. This this epidemic may have been the cause of Pocahontas's death. Mattapony oral tradition states she was poisoned. It's really difficult oh, to say. Okay. If we take a step back and consider Pocahontas's life through our premise of the stories we tell, a number of things stand out. Much of what we know about Pocahontas is a myth. Except mm -hmm. for her time in London, contemporaries spent little time recording episodes or details about her. We could suggest a lot of reasons why this would be the case, but the fact remains that she did not really gain the fame that she continues to have today until the 1820s. Oh, oh my gosh. That's fascinating. That is fascinating. Stay with me. At that time, 1820s, Historians look to Smith's general history, classic, as we've already said. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Sarcasm again. Sorry, everyone. Which was one of the only available published accounts of early Jamestown. Right. Smith wrote this work during the second Anglo-Powhatan War, which took place from 1622 to 1632. Okay. In light of this, we can see that Smith was influenced by current events as he spoke of treacherous Indians. And of course, ever, ever a shameless self-promoter, Smith emphasized his own heroism. Of course. This is also the text, which includes the now famous episode of, air quotes, Princess Pocahontas, the one, air quote, good Indian saved his life. Wow. When she threw so herself upon him. 
Um, so even though many details in this history contradict earlier accounts, it continues to shape what much of the public inverted commas again, knows about Pocahontas, as is seen in the Disney movie that you've already referenced and the 2005 film, The New World. Oh, I've never seen that one. What were you going to say? I was going to say, too, is this, you know, is this the kind of trying to create an origin story for the Americas and they're oh using... Oh, my gosh. I just can't believe you asked me that. <laughs> <laughs> in their effort to proclaim themselves as true Americans. Yes. I mean, it's almost like you knew what I was going to say. I, I did it. I mean, maybe I did. I don't know. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> Didn't know. Virginians have long sought to connect themselves with Pocahontas. For example, during Jim Crow. A number of states passed so-called one-drop laws. And in Virginia, one such law, which passed in 1924, was called the Racial Integrity Act. It, and it allowed, mandate, it didn't allow, it mandated the state to assign all newborns to two racial categories, white mm -hmm. or colored. Right. But, but. The so-called Pocahontas Clause made an exception in cases where, quote, persons who have one-sixteenth or less of the blood of the American Indian and have no other non-Caucasic blood shall be deemed to be white persons. God. The Pocahontas. It's in. <laughs> <laughs> the Pocahontas Clause was added in direct response to an outcry by elite Virginians who claimed Pocahontas and John Rolfe as distant relatives and who worried that, according to the proposed law, they wouldn't be considered to be white. Oh my God, it's insane. It's insane. It, it's so fascinating, actually, because it goes along with this. I love to, to teach the history of whiteness in classes because students, it's, it's something that we just don't talk about enough that people can be deemed, you know, not white and then white. And this is such a fascinating example, right? I usually talk about how the Irish, when they first arrived in America, were not deemed white. And then they became white through the process of assimilation. But this example is layered, right? It also is layered with this desire for particularly Virginians to be considered like the original Americans. Um, and it, it also strips Pocahontas of all of her um, ability to kind of like proclaim her own history, right? It just strips her of, of that, that ability in such a, a horrific way. It's so fascinating. All right, I hope you're sitting down for this. I am sitting. I'm ready. But those claims that I just mentioned about being related to Pocahontas. Okay. Yeah. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. Those claims 
are dubious. Oh, shocking. I know. That's why you needed to be sitting down. Pocahontas' son, Thomas Rolfe, never became an elite Virginian. He was never part of the colonial's elite when he returned okay. in 1635. He died in 1681, place unknown, and left behind an unknown number of children, if any. Wow. Virginia kept no consistent records of births, marriages, and deaths before 1853, and no part of Thomas Rolfe's descended genealogy was written down until the 1820s, about the same time when... What was it? Everybody became interested in Pocahontas and was reading John Smith's general history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, in other words, exactly when the Pocahontas myth was beginning to be constructed. It's fascinating. It's insane. Also, I mean, you just told us, too, that, you know, he or their one son remained in England until after his father died. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's just like there's no way of connecting. Ugh. sorry. It's a fascinating look into how people want to create identity for themselves out of, out of, uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's fascinating. I mean, so the descendants then most likely, you know, in Virginia wouldn't be those of Thomas, but they would be those of any children that she and uh, Kakoam may have had. Right. Right which probably wouldn't be Virginia elites. Right. Yeah. And do, do we know anything about those children? Who is and is not actually descended from Pocahontas remains both cloudy and controversial. Okay. So, um, yeah, that that's the story of, of Matoica, Pocahontas, Rebecca. It's so good. It's so fascinating. It, and I know I mentioned this earlier, but Pocahontas was truly the Disney film. Pocahontas was one of my favorite films growing up. Um, and it is, which is, I think, not a necessary. I mean, it's terribly historically inaccurate and problematic. I think everybody's going to give you a pass because you were a kid. If no, no, no. And I'm not even saying that in a bad way, but because it did bring me to history. I mean, I really liked the component that at least it was a real person. And you're giving me a very stern look. But I, I so appreciate getting to hear and learning about the true story. And it's so much more interesting, so much more interesting. Oh, I mean, imagine how much more fun that film would have been if they portrayed John Smith accurately as a, just a real egotistical maniac. It would have been so much more fun well, anyway. I think, but. I think though, and mm, based on the, like, the real solid record that we have, there would be little bits and pieces. There wouldn't be a continuous whole movie, you know, Absolutely. because she like she'll pop up in the documentary record and then go away oh, again man. and pop up and go away. And I think, um, you know, and that's not to I'm not trying to downplay her significance as a as a person, as a historical figure. But I do think like the fact that it becomes a Disney movie really is so much more about the stories that have been told about her than the yes. actual story of her life. Yes. Although, I mean, she led an exceptional life. I mean, we've got to give her that. Most 
most women in her position wouldn't, you know, wouldn't go to England, wouldn't meet the king, you know. I mean, she, yeah. Most most women in any time period. Most women in England wouldn't meet <laughs> the, king. the king. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So there, there is absolutely that. But um, I think it's more of just kind of you, how people have used the story of her or have selectively chosen the stories that they tell about her to advance their own interests. Yeah, and create an origin story for America. Yeah. Um, which we were, I think it's interesting about the 1820s. I've taught Columbus too, and it's a similar story where it's, you know, they're just trying to find an origin story and then make it that, um, which is more oftentimes, I think, the way history was written than actually trying to discover the true past. And what is the true past? <laughs> That is a very philosophical question. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't exist. I it's know it doesn't. Yeah, I know. And we're even contributors of that. I know. It's all down to historical interpretations. Exactly. We're part of the problem. I but know. you know what? This podcast is part of the solution. All right. <laughs> that was so fun. Thank you so much. talking about the number of Virginians that were proud to claim Pocahontas as their ancestor. And the question might be, why would a group of people that sought to dispossess and enslave indigenous peoples want to then trace their ancestry back to a native woman? I think there are a couple of things that we can look at to help us unpack this. And I think these also inform the larger context of how the story of America draws on this one notable native woman. First, it is very important that Pocahontas is considered a princess. While there isn't an Algonquin context for such a title, her identity as a princess is certainly emphasized in English and later American tellings of her story. During the colonial era, there was some hand-wringing about quote-unquote going native. Essentially, that rather than encouraging Indians to live more like the English and other Europeans, colonists would instead abandon civilization and throw their lot in with neighboring native communities. In this way, it is important that not only did Pocahontas become Rebecca, but that she was native royalty when she converted. Highlighting for everyone the cultural superiority of the English. Later then, as you have a generation of Virginians that fancy themselves aristocrats, this genealogical connection to Indian royalty justifies the ideas they have about their identity and the claim that they have to a truly American brand of royalty or gentry. The images of Pocahontas, first as Rebecca with that fantastic hat that we mentioned, give way to increasingly sexualized images and these present a message that Native women and Native land were available for conquest. Ultimately, all of these 
pieces are baked into the historical memory of Pocahontas. And this memory created a palatable story of colonialism, one in which native princesses come to the aid of white men. Insert John Smith's story of Pocahontas saving his life. Convert to Christianity and adopt Anglo life ways. As told through the myth of Pocahontas, colonialism is a romance and America is the product of the marrying of American Indian royalty and English, later British, later American culture. Of course, the latter was more potent, which resulted in its ascendancy. But all that came after could feel guiltless because they could find their Indian princess ancestor. So the stories we tell about Pocahontas refashion a history of dispossession and genocide into a love story. A love story that acted as a salve for the guilty conscience of empire builders and a love story that continues to shape Americans' understandings of who they are today. Thank you so much for listening. If you're interested in learning more about this topic, check out the recommended reading list on our Instagram account. Our handle is stories underscore we underscore tell underscore podcast. Please join us next time to examine another legacy, another memory, and explore the stories we tell.